Hello and a very warm welcome to this event on Britain and its role in the world after Brexit. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm the Director of the Institute for Government and we're delighted to be working on this event and to have put it together with Welcome and with Imperial College London. And there has not been a shortage of things to talk about with this. Obviously trade is very central with the Brexit talks still continuing more or less but we've also had a lot of discussion about the role of development aid in Britain's place in the world uh, in, the, in the coming years and the merger of that Department of Government with the Foreign Office has provoked even more of that. There are debates about the military side and many, many debates about the relations with the United States, with the election coming up there and debates about how, what Britain can bring to this, what special skills, interests, um, and, and uh, unique qualities, if you like, it brings to its relation with the world and how that might change. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to have a terrific panel here to discuss all this. Um, really could not be better. Uh, Lisa Nandy, MP, Shadow Secretary of State for all these things, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Affairs. Sasuma Chakrabarti, who's the former Permanent Secretary at the Department for International Development and the Ministry of Justice and uh, former President of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and is the incoming chair of the ODI, the Overseas Development Institute. Stephen Bush, the political editor of New Statesman, and Dr. Beth Thompson, head of policy and advocacy for the UK and the EU at the Wellcome Trust. Well, very warm welcome to you all. And thanks for joining us. And for all of you submitting questions, please do, and I'll keep an eye on them and we will come to them in good time to, to feed them all in. Lisa and Andy, may, may I start with you? Um, and let's start with the, uh, the the question of trade because it's it's, it's most immediate. But what what has provoked uh, you about thinking how Britain should position itself? Well, I suppose, I suppose the first thing to say about trade is that I think it's becoming increasingly apparent that Britain has not taken a long term view about how trade impacts on our future relationships with countries around the world for quite some time and we're currently paying the price for that. It's We're always going to do trade deals with countries around the world, especially now that we're out of the European Union. It's become increasingly important that we do. But if you take China as one example, and obviously the, the rise of China is something that everybody is very focused on at the moment around the world, we, we of course need to do trade deals with China. We need to trade with China. The Chinese economy is embedded right through the global economy. But in order to, to, to be able to negotiate in a way that protects the things that matter to us, whether it's standing up for human rights, whether it's advancing on climate change, whether it's um, uh, protecting food standards or labour rights, we need to have negotiating clout. We need constructive engagement with the Chinese government, but we need far more strategic independence. Now, the problem with where we are at the moment is that we've gained a reputation as an alliance breaker um, around the world. Uh, we're outside of the EU. Relations are very strained with our European partners, but we also haven't managed to build strong alliances with other countries, too. And so we're taking a piecemeal approach rather than a values based long term approach to trade negotiations with fairly poor results. The advantage of being in the EU was that by working together with other partners, we could do trade deals that actually help to move the world forwards on issues like climate change and raise environmental standards as part of those deals. Now that we're outside of the EU, there is a really pressing need to think where are those alliances going to be forged with other countries? Now, Dominic Raab in recent weeks has been talking about this a little bit 
in relation to the Huawei issue, where we've been squeezed between China and the US in a trade war. Um, and there's talked about this alliance of the D10 that is gaining some traction, where we work with other democratic countries to pull technology and to work together in order to advance our interests. I think that's the sort of thinking that is desperately needed about how we build those democratic alliances around the world in order to make sure that the trade deals that we do actually help to advance our long-term industries, whether it's protecting democracy, standing up for human rights, or advancing the environmental cause around the world. Just two other very quick things. Um, we need to think differently. About uh, well, I was your point about that already, so uh, go on. Mm -hmm. um, well, I was ju just going to say that we, actually it's one very quick thing really, which is that we also need to think differently about how we do trade around the world. And at the moment, the trade system that we have is very clunky, it's very outdated, it's these bilateral trade agreements that were built in an era of big agriculture. Apologies, because I'm in the House of Commons, so the bell is constantly ringing. Um, we, need to, we need to start thinking about how we use those democratic alliances to do multilateral trade deals so that we work with other countries that have similar economies to our own, so that we can get a better deal for Britain and for them as well. And we need to think seriously about how the trade system works too. We've got a model at the moment where countries are incentivised to uh, raise taxes, to cut welfare spending in order to invest in producing more. Uh, and that creates a system like you have in China at the moment, where many of the workers there just quite simply can't afford to consume the things that they produce. That then means that those things go onto a global market, uh, lowering the price of other goods, putting people out of work, um, and so you've got a situation now where the rising tension between China and the US is in large part caused by the trade model that we currently have. Now, that is not just a problem for China and the United States. It's a problem for the entire world. And so we desperately need to do what we last did after the Second World War, come together and work together to reform the trade model in our collective interests. Okay, thanks. Well, I'm going to come back to some of those points. But when you say reform the trade model, what what what, what do you mean exactly? Exactly. Well, uh, we've got lots of negotiations. There is the WTO behind all that. What what exactly are you saying a Labour government would do differently? Well, first of all, rebuilding those alliances so that we can actually have those discussions on a world stage. The multilateral institutions that we have are currently not functioning for a variety of reasons, but a large part of that is is global leadership. But the, the problem behind all of this is essentially that you've got um, workers in some countries, not just in China, but in other countries, some of the southern European states, for example, as well, who are, uh, Germany is another example, where you've got workers who are, um, are seeing their living standards fall in order that their countries can invest in producing more to sell to the yeah. rest of the world, and workers in other countries who are paying the price for that too. Now, the debate at global level, at national level, has very much been about whether you choose the interests of China or you choose the interests of the US, do you choose the interests of Germany or do you choose the interests of Greece? But actually, all workers are suffering from this model. So we need to, to reconstruct the trade system so that we don't have an incentive for some countries to have huge surpluses and other countries to pay the price for that. We need to come together and work out a better way of doing this so that workers aren't disadvantaged. All right, well, thanks for that. We could, we could uh, you, uh, you and I, I'm sure, go on for an hour uh, just on that uh, that, that point. Um, but uh, let's let's not go there. Uh, Suma Chakrabarti, um, your, your, your view of um, 
uh, uh, there's trade and indeed aid. Thanks very much. Uh, great to be on this panel. I think the first thing to say is that UK has always been one of the most open economies throughout its history, even before it joined the EU in the early 70s. And I think it's uh, likely to remain that way. And it's been actually a cornerstone of economic growth in this country uh, over the centuries. But we are at a sort of point where people, I think, out there are questioning, including voters in the UK are questioning, as we saw in the Brexit vote, questioning the whole model of whether we should believe in a free trade system in, in the way we used to, or to what extent we should curb some of the excesses that it's led to. Uh, Globalisation, I actually believe, has overall been a good thing, but it has definitely also meant more inequality in certain places. And so I think for the Labour Party or for any uh, aspiring uh, government, they have to work out really what their economic philosophy is going forward. And the trade um, approach would have to fit into that. Are we going to be still free traders as we were before? Or are we going to say, actually, there is room, and this is where the debate about state aid, for example, fits in, is there is room for some uh, protection of certain industries, at least in the infant, uh, their infant days. Well, the history of that is not always brilliant. It's uh, tended, industries have tended to be protected through the, into their adult days as well, uh, often being subsidised for a long, long time. But that debate is around because we have underperforming regions, uh, people locked out of the economic system that is built around a free trade system. So I think Labour or any other party would have to think about to what extent are we still free traders? Secondly, the facts of the matter with COVID are that um, a lot of global supply chains are having to be changed because people were, have decided that actually part of the problem with COVID, the reason it spread so easily, was because of a oh no, too open uh, uh, an economy, really, if you're a world economy. So uh, people moved around too easily, global supply chains, uh, you're too dependent on certain countries, particularly China, of course. Uh, and people want to change that. So I think that's, again, part of the mix of the arguments that Labour is going to, I think, have to think about uh, going forward. And the third thing I'd mention is really the future of the WTO in all of this. We're, of course, in the middle of an election now for the next head of the WTO. Um, but the WTO has developed, I think, as a really important institution uh, over the last, uh, well, since the Second World War with GATT and then moving into the WTO. And it needs preserving, but it also needs some reform, frankly. And that's when Lisa's points about, I think, um, building some alliances with other countries that have like-minded views around trade uh, would be important. But first, first of all, I think Labour has to decide what is its trading model that it actually wants to believe? What is its economic model going forward? Uh, it's very clear under Blair and Brown. I think it uh, needs to be rethought, I think, with the new world that we are in right these days. That's where I would be on trade. Okay, thanks very much indeed for that. Let me just um, think, I'm, I'm surprised, uh, not just that you're um, comparatively optimistic, if you like, about the WTO, whereas um, a lot of people are saying, look, it really has got stuck. It is uh, uh, almost deprived of an adjudication uh, me um, mechanism, um, in, unless the US allows more, uh, more judges onto that panel. But I'm surprised also that you, are as equivocal as you sounded to me, about globalisation, which surely, I put it to you, has raised a lot of poor countries and a lot of very poor people in the world um, from where they were. Absolutely. I'm not equivocal. I'm absolutely a believer that it has actually been, you know, the fastest reduction in poverty in, our, in history has been during this period of globalisation. But it's also true, as I've observed from my most recent job, 
that certain communities didn't uh, benefit. It didn't lift all boats, uh, float all boats. So let's take, for example, a young uh, youth unemployment problem in many countries that we see. Clearly, that hasn't really worked out through globalization. Or uh, women entrepreneurs who are often locked out of financial systems. Uh, again, globalization didn't solve those problems. So well, I, I know I give you that, and it's not perfect, but still, you're calling on labor to decide to what extent they're free traders. Well, I, that, that seems equivocal to me. I think I think any party has to decide: are, are we complete free traders with very little in the way of tariffs or uh, import quotas or whatever, or are we actually going to say certain industries? Well, they matter, and we will actually have some protection. In, and I think there is a, this is an open argument going on in many, many countries, not just in the UK, actually, uh, in many of the G20 countries. Um, so that and it's, okay. it's an argument that's going on in the US election underneath it all as well. We're going to come on to. So uh, thanks, thanks very much for that. Beth, Beth Thompson, what, what's your perspective on this and particularly on this question of, of, of what the UK might bring um, to the, the trading competition and to its role in the world? Welcome is a foundation that improves to exist health by helping great ideas to thrive. And we, we fundamentally do that by supporting research. So it won't be a surprise to hear that for us, the, the UK's role in promoting international collaboration is a, is a critical aspect of, of foreign policy. And international collaboration is really at the heart of research in two ways. Firstly, in the sense that researchers doing any type of research want to seek out the best minds, the best ideas from elsewhere. And that means um, that they'll find them where the, wherever they are in the research in the world. Researchers are great at creating these kind of bottom up collaborations, but we do need systems that support them to do that. Um, that said, we also have big global challenges facing us. We've talked already briefly about climate change and COVID and those big global challenges need global solutions and they need research to help to solve them and the only way to do that is by working together because one country alone is never big enough to find the answers it needs we see that really clearly in covid that while different countries are pursuing different vaccine options we need to pull the risk of doing that in order to stand the best chance of creating a vaccine that can work globally so international collaboration is at the heart um, is at the heart of research and can I just ask you on that, Beth, is it something that you see that, that companies and foundations like your own should pursue? Or what is the role of government in this? So we're sitting here, so to speak, at the Labour Party conference, talking about what, in, in essence, a Labour government might might do and what any government should do, in your view. And what, 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 what is the balance, in your view, of the, the, those roles between uh, government and, and the private sector or the third sector? In solving these challenges, it's really important that we are bringing together both government and private sector. Um, both of them have a role to play. We need the experience and the expertise, for example, in the global pharmaceutical companies. We also need governments, though, to work out how to get the vaccines, for example, to people who need them most, both in the UK and also overseas. I think the interesting thing about research and how it fits into trade discussions is that it's almost never a zero-sum game in the way that it might be to, uh, to agree how you trade on, in, say, cars or uh, so automotive industry or aerospace there's something to be won for both sides it's good for both sides when you start uh, to collaborate on research and therefore you can use research as a tool uh, to bring countries together to promote dialogue uh, and to build bridges 
Um, we've seen great examples of that in the past. For example, Sesame, which is a, a large scale project in the Middle East, um, which strategically was designed to, to bring the community together and, and promote peace in the Middle East. And that's where I think government's role becomes really important. We can work out uh, how to support uh, how to support research domestically, but also through these international tools. And some of that, for example, is promoting um, the movement of researchers, the movement of the talent that we need in, in free trade agreement and as part of wider trade deals. Um, we can, that, we, that will help us support this kind of bottom-up collaboration. But I think there's also a broader a, a kind of strategic and a more of a leadership role uh, that the UK is, is able to and should be playing um, particularly if we look at these issues like COVID, where we need multilateral global solutions, it's absolutely critical that the UK is, is there playing a leadership role um, and bringing others to the table in a collaborative rather than a competitive way um, to find the solutions that we need. Uh, and I think there's, there's great parallels between some of the points that um, Lisa made about multilateralism and bilateralism. So, it seems like you can almost get infinite good from collaborating on research because it's a win for both sides because it's good for science but the yeah. truth is if we it's spread infinite good i was with you up to that point but infinite good seems um something beyond the wildest promises of any part of conference <laughs> it, so uh, and it is and that's because there is a trade-off in in how much research you can support at one time and at the moment there has been a tendency to not be strategic about how we engage with research partners overseas. Uh, we've done it in a piecemeal way. And I think the UK needs to think very strategically, be wary of spreading the jam too thin across too many collaborations and be very clear on the objective. Are we using research uh, to promote our overseas relationships or are we using it um, to, uh, for, for, to, to achieve something on research itself? And that's where uh, there'll be different partners who we want to pick and work with on different things and we should use those relationships um, constructively and collaboratively but also smartly um, and multilateral relationships will often be able to leverage more from when we're working with like-minded partners and, and partners of a similar size so we're not kind of outgunned yeah. um, in order to do that and the EU has been a, a great source of those collaborations so far and it's really important that the UK looks to maintain that as much as possible, but also build on that as a gateway to collaborating with the rest of the world. OK, well, we don't have it all our way on that. In fact, the EU has been rather cool about that particular one, uh, contrary to what um, the UK first thought, I think. So, Stephen, I mean, it, we're here at, at the Labour Party conference. You, you've been hearing these three portraits, if you like, of how Britain might uh, present itself and, and uh, appeal to various strengths and remedy various weaknesses. Um, what do you make of it? Uh, we've got Brexit happening in some form. We've got the um, US elections, which we'll come on to in a second, coming down the line. Um, what do, how, do, how do you think Labour should go about uh, thinking of Britain and the world? Yeah, I think, um, and I am aware starting with this point at an IFG event is a bit like starting, at, I don't know, like a meeting of the Arsenal football fans and saying, well, the thing we really need to do is first get rid of Spurs. But I think what really underlines is how ill-conceived the 2016 Whitehall reorg was and the creation of the Department of International Trade and how the kind of thinking around that continues to kind of um, stymie the way we think about British trade policy because we kind of sort of created this idea that there's this sort of magical quality called trade 
and it exists separately from your education policy, your skills policy, your agri-food policy, or research policy, or, or whatever you kind of care to name. And obviously there's an, an ongoing debate within the Labour Party about what they should do about the um, folding in of DFID into the Foreign Office. And but I can say this, well, I was about to say I can say this safely because I'm not in the same place as, as either Emily or Lisa, as that's not true because I too am in Parliament. But it's a lot harder for them to track me down and find me when I say this, which is an, basically I think one of the things the Labour Party ought to do is, uh, is think seriously about getting rid of that as a separate portfolio. I think it leads to a really unhelpful way of thinking about trade getting, policy. Getting rid of, 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 of DIT. Yeah. Um, it leads to a really unhelpful way of thinking about trade policy. And while I think there's a much more complex argument about about the value of DFID, about the fact that keeping it separately does make it a much more poverty focused, poverty fighting focused body. The, the central, the biggest thing I think the Labour Party should be doing in opposition is kind of freeing itself from this idea that there's this kind of separate sort of bag of stuff called trade, whereas actually our trade policy has to be at the heart of everything that not only that Lisa does, but Ed Miliband does, and then, um, you know, that the whole, and we see already in, in, in the context of the government we have now, that this kind of weird way that they've sort of decided that free trade is a thing that uh, Liz Truss does, means that they don't really have a coherent trade policy. I think the other thing, and yeah, kind of, that's, yeah, one, one thing we were speaking about earlier, of course, is, you know, to what extent should Labour be a, a proudly free trade party? Now, you're right, of course, to talk about the redistributive value of trade across the world. But the truth is, of course, and it has redistributed wasn't uh, redistributive, but I mean, yeah. it's yeah. yeah. metaphor, raising many boats at the same time. Yeah. But it has, um, it has, you know, it has, but yeah, the, the difficulty for pretty much every advanced economy is that a group of not particularly well-skilled, people who used to work in manufacturing, mostly male, mostly without degrees, people have been the losers from that redistribution. And the challenge of, for all uh, sort of social democratic or centre left political parties has been how do they get elected by saying, well, you know, I'm sorry that your standard of living has declined relative to other people, but, but, but the bottom billion are much better off. Now, it's true that the bottom billion are much better off. But the difficulty for Labour and for all political parties which are in the business of getting elected is they have got to work out a way to balance uh, those those two things. And I think that and then part of how you, they will do that is by freeing themselves from this kind of intellectual prison um, in our in our country, typified by the creation of the DIT. But in general, uh, this prison and kind of trade exists separately from the rest of the sort of policy menu, as it were. Okay, but to pick up that, because Labour and parts of Labour have been quite keen on trade being done separately, for example, from foreign policy, much as they've separated off, saying, look, we don't want it all tangled up, so foreign policy becomes your trade policy. And that's been what some people thought would be the danger after Brexit, um, which is that the UK so much wants trade deals that everything, human rights and all kinds of alliances, gets subsumed to the, um, the desire to strike a trade deal. I mean, isn't that to kind of be careful what you wish for? That that if you if um, if uh, trade is really central, it can hoover up the others. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's kind of present in the. I mean, in terms of the sort of practicalities of how the customs union in the European Union occasionally worked, right? This this idea that every trade deal that the EU struck was a sort of uh, brilliant sort of forward stride for democratic values is also not true. Um, what what will matter both when we were in the European Union and now that we've left it is whether or not you have effective uh, principled leadership. But it's impossible to separate, for example, you know, 
let's take a global threat we don't talk about all that often antibiotic resistance right is cannot be separated from your trade policy um and there is an argument then that is sufficiently important then it does have to be more important than workers rights other the other things that you've talked about i'm not necessarily saying that it should but i think ultimately the challenge of foreign policy as you know uh, as you know uh, both Dominic Raba and, and, and Lisa have sort of said very eloquently on the floor of house is that China's not going anywhere. So our trade policy can't be predicated on the idea that if we have the right set of trade deals, then suddenly China will disappear. It does, however, of course, have to take into account the fact that there is something that, as far as I'm concerned, is is, is a genocide is going on in China uh, as we speak. But um, But our trade policy is not going to remove China, China's leadership from the face of the earth and has to have an according sort of humility to it. Yes, not always present. I absolutely agree with you. All right, so let's, um, you've all in different ways brought up uh, the US and China. Let's throw them explicitly into this picture and ask how the UK should manage relations with these two countries. We've had the, the Huawei row going on much of this year. We've got the UK US presidential election coming down the are uh, the line with us with two very different candidates there. But what are your thoughts? Who'd like to go first on this? Uh, Lisa, let me come back to you on this. So I think this is the thing that is really uh, exercising most people at the moment around the world in all of the Zoom calls, the many Zoom calls into world leaders' living rooms that I and Kira have been doing over the last few months. This is top of people's political agenda. And I think it's been likened to the Cold War. I think I said that at the start, but in my view, this is far more complicated than a Cold War situation. It's not a question of which side do you choose. It's a question of how do you have a level of constructive engagement um, with both the Chinese and the United States government, particularly given, as Stephen mentioned, there's a situation going on in China with human rights and particularly with the Uyghur people. There's the need for the UK to stand up very strongly and very clearly in defence of the Sino-British declaration in Hong Kong. All of these things are causing serious tensions between our government and the Chinese government. And at the same time, you've got a United States administration that has decided to step out of the leadership role that it's played since the Second World War. Um, a situation which I don't think gets less complicated for Britain, actually, if Biden is elected. It's an open secret who I'd be voting for if I was a US citizen. But um, and, um, you know, some things become much more straightforward with the Biden victory. But actually, there is a view amongst some of the perhaps not the people closest to Biden, but amongst some of the newer, demo younger Democrats and that generation that um, Britain has uh, absented itself from a world role by stepping outside of the European Union. Um, that as, in as far as relations with Europe are critical, it's France and Germany who are the key partners. And that Asia is more of a preoccupation than Europe anyway. So there are, there are ongoing complications for Britain and our role in the world, regardless of who wins the US election. And I did just want to say that because I think there is a view, particularly on the left, that if the Biden administration wins, then this all becomes plain sailing. There is a lot of work to be done between now and then and over the coming years to solve that. The question for me is how, where does Britain place itself in all of that? How do we stop ourselves being in a position, as we've found recently with Huawei, where we're effectively being asked to choose whether we go along with Chinese interests or American interests? How do we make sure that in all of that we're able to stand apart and have what William Hague has called a twin pillar approach, constructive engagement, 
that's far more strategic independence so that we're never again in a situation where our national security services are saying this decision compromises our national security and the government is saying maybe we'll just do it anyway. Mm-hmm. For me, that means that you have to have, firstly, a consistent approach to China. Um, the, the, the Department for Business, Energy, Innovation and Skills is currently considering handing over technology in our nuclear industry to Chinese-backed firms, uh, even as the Department for Culture, Media and Sport is removing uh, Huawei from our 5G network because of the same concerns about national security. You've got a foreign office that is currently standing uh, firm against Chinese uh, 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 human rights abuses and um, the unravelling of the Sino-British Declaration, and at the same time, a treasury that is looking to China for investment post-COVID. So we need a consistent approach. And ironically, actually, the Chinese are very good at this. They have well, very consistent. <laughs> they have strategic groups about major challenges that are chaired by uh, by senior leaders within government that yeah. will make sure that there is one approach to all of this. Okay. And I guess one, one just very quick thing I would say as yeah. well, there's a bit of chatter as well about sort of aid and the role that aid plays in all of this. Yeah. Is that although we didn't support the DFID takeover, although we believe that aid, you know, in the Labour Party, we've always believed that aid should remain separate um, from uh, trade, particularly in trade deals. Um, there is an opportunity now to think through how we use our aid budget in order to support countries to, to retain their independence so that we don't get the situation that we've seen where issues as important as resolution of crimes in Syria are being blocked at the United Nations because of the growing power that China now exerts over developing countries' economies. Yeah. So there are opportunities for us okay. and I think that, that's really important that we don't just look at what the government has done and say this is wrong we look at where we are and say, how do we move forwards? Yeah, well, thank you very much indeed for that. Beth, can I come to you? Um, And you're making a powerful pitch for collaboration and and collaboration and research and so on. How much do you think we should collaborate with with China uh, in research and indeed in accepting students here? I think this is one of the areas where the security concerns apply much more to when you're using a technology than when they're being developed. And there is potential to use research as a a trust building um, and relationship building tool in a sense between the UK and and China. But I think that does need to be done strategically and with thought and with care um, rather than um, as as a kind of uh, ad hoc activity. Absolutely students, um, international students play a vital role in our universities, both in terms of the funding they bring, but also um, the the, the different cultures and the different um, the, the different insights that they bring and they add enormous richness to our university so and I think it we do need to embrace students from from around the world and that is a way that we can collaborate uh, very openly uh, and, and therefore use that to build the trust so there I see um, research student exchange as part of the UK's diplomatic endeavor um, and I think that that can be really helpful as we forge our, our approach in the world. I think the other interesting tension that we see in, in particularly as the, the US withdraws from some of the multilateral institutions, we've seen it withdraw its funding from the World Health Organization, is that does leave this sense of a, 
uh, a power gap in some of those great multilateral institutions. And that's something that the UK um, can contribute its leadership to. Yes, we're not as big, but the UK has a strong track record in, in aspects of international development in terms of its international leadership. And I think it's important for the UK to grasp that role in a way that will do good for the world, but actually will also be good in turn for the UK's global reputation. So I'd like to see see science being used as, as part of that diplomatic armory, but also the UK to really step up to that leadership role. Stephen pointed out the example of antimicrobial resistance. That's a, a really important area for us to take the lead on. Um, and I, I, aid is a much more challenging issue, and I agree that it's it's it shouldn't be used as a diplomatic tool. It's not something that should be exchanged for a good trade deal, but we should absolutely use that to do to do good in the world. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Suma, what, what do you reckon hear, hearing this and thinking of both the US and the, uh, the China challenges, if you like? So for the last eight years running EBRD, um, where the US is the largest shareholder, yep. and one of the things I did was bring China into, into the EBRD, um, I think I had a sort of, you know, ringside seat in this relationship, rather weird relationship. So my first four years, um, it was actually quite harmonious in the sense that the US wanted China in international institutions like the EBRD because it was a way of actually making sure China also followed the very sort of rules-based uh, processes in these institutions. The last uh, few years have been completely utterly different. We have here a Venn diagram. I think there's a US, there's China, but there's also a US-China relationship. So in, in relation to the US, I think um, you know, Labour Party um, should be actually trying to reach out, and I'm sure they are, Lisa and her team probably are already reaching out to potential uh, different administration and the sort of people that are going to come through and already discussing some of the major areas uh, where they're likely to make common cause. That's going to be very important. A fundamental issue is if there is another Trump victory is whether US basically steps out of the international multilateral system pretty much. It may still remain the major shareholder in all of them, but I know certainly from the idea that the US really in the last few years has not played much of a role in guiding the institution. And I think that's the same in other multilateral institutions. So that's a big, big dis issue because the US was a founding part of these institutions and, and it makes the whole system work. Um, on the China side, I think there's a, you know, you've all mentioned, I mean, Lisa and Beth have both mentioned the sort of multifaceted relationships with China, whether it's human rights, whether it's economic development, education, um, and all those sorts of issues, technology. The one thing I would say is, and I get very, very tired of hearing people describe China, uh, you know, as a sort of some sort of monolithic entity. Frankly, I have found when working with China that there is a very wide spectrum of views within China about many of these issues, including many who would agree with many of us on some of these issues, actually, but don't have voice necessarily. And if they spoke up too much, might be challenged as well. But also within the government systems, also people who are more pro-free trade, for example, on climate, uh, they have very good, on Africa, uh, very strong instincts as well. And in some of these areas, I think actually Britain can make some progress. I think Hong Kong and human rights will remain to, to, to bugbears. Finally, I think on the Venn diagram bit, I mean, you know, the US-China relationship, one thing I don't think that's going to change, frankly, is if there is a Biden administration, I don't think attitudes towards China will change very much. It's pretty bipartisan yeah. uh, on the hill uh, against China. Uh, and I think uh, we're all going to have to struggle with that. Uh, you might have some nuances in that relationship, 
but overall, I don't think the, there's going to be some sort of reset uh, button being pushed as Hillary Clinton tried to do on Russia. Uh, I think it, essentially we will have to live with a very, very acidic relationship between those two countries for some time. Yes, uh, I must say uh, to me that rings very, very true. Stephen, um, what, what's, your, what's your take on this and, and, and how Labour positions itself on this as well as um, how Britain positions itself? In some ways, right. One of the, you know, Tony's excellent point about the fact that actually the China stuff in the United States context is incredibly bipartisan shows that in some ways the how should Britain position itself and how should Labour position itself questions are actually one and the same in some ways, right? While there are um, inevitably uh, issues where the political parties can't agree, and I don't think it would be healthy if they were to try, so workers' rights is obviously one, but um, the essence of a successful trade policy is the ability to bring your political class with you, right? That's why they are worth doing from the other side's perspective, right? Then, as Lisa says, the, pro the problem that we have now is that the British state is seen as an alliance breaker, not so much because of the fact of it leaving the European Union, but the manner of it leaving the European Union, right? We are the country which um, negotiated the backstop. I, I still think a brilliant diplomatic achievement, but you know, obviously no one else did. Um, yeah, we negotiated the backstop, voted it down, kept going back asking for exemptions to the backstop, negotiated a, a border in the Irish Sea, now is saying that it hates a border in the Irish Sea. And, and this agenda is deeply contested even within the ruling party. Now, you've got to ask yourself, if you were the finance minister of any country, right, and you were thinking, oh, so I could have a fight with my own farming lobby for this US, for this UK trade deal, or I could not because, you know, they fight among themselves and in four years' time, this Keir Starmer bloke might rock up and want a completely different trade deal, you wouldn't bother. And that's why, actually, it's not just about what Labour wants to do now, it's also about if we're going to have a decent trade policy in this country, the government does kind of have to, to move first on some of this stuff, which is they do have to create agreement and consensus on at least some things. Um, in terms of the specific US-China position, I think, you know, the rest of the panel is absolutely right. That, um, although uh, Biden administration is a massive upgrade in many ways, not least uh, the fact that he does have significantly more executive function than Donald Trump, um, Many of the challenges of UK foreign policy are about things that the US political elite believes to be in its interests more broadly, and those things don't change. I think the challenge for the UK is working out on issues like, say, just because, you know, it's top of mind, right, agri-food, right? Why are we all doing this conference in this weird distance way? Because of dangerous practices in Chinese agribusiness. We know, indeed, the government has an excellent national food strategy paper that is currently ongoing on this, that agri-food is one of the global pandemic risks. Well, is our trade policy to be pro or anti-China? Well, neither. We actually think both of those countries are acting in a pretty risky way that, you know, will cause us to be doing conferences like this for many years to come if we're, we're not, not very careful. And I think really on that kind of thing, it's, uh, what needs to happen is for there needs to be a coming together of both political parties on some of those broad things where they have already signed up to, right? Both parties have ambitious climate targets. Both parties are, on the whole, not into pandemics. Uh, therefore, right, the, the kind of onus in some ways really is on, on the party which is currently in office to form a consensus on those things, because that's the only way you get real breakthroughs in trade. OK, great. Let's come to some questions now, which are going to touch on, I, I think, quite a lot of these these things. But thanks for that uh, from, from you all, that burst of eloquence on these very wide ranging questions. Let me start with Dr. Deepankar Dutta um, from the University of Warwick, uh, who's um, 
submitted a long question, in fact, two lots. Um, but forgive me, I'm going to take um, uh, Dr. Dutta, your, your, your second one, which is, could Labour see itself as championing the green economy and taking a leader, leadership, leadership position on that? Lisa, can I ask you uh, that one? I think that it is inevitable that a future Labour government would place a significant emphasis on um, tackling climate change and rebuilding through investment in what we've called up until this point the Green New Deal um, for a number of reasons. But what would be, I suppose, what would probably be different is the way in which we seek to build a consensus around that. So I, I'm an adamantly believe that tackling climate change is in the interests of working people here, just as it's in the interests of poorer people on the other side of the world. You know, when you look at um, the people who've been most impacted by climate change to date, although we've had significant floods here and there've been lots of families who've been affected, you've seen the most severe impact on some of the poorest people in yes. the world who've lost their homes, their livelihoods, in some, you know, in some instances, their, their, their entire community. And, um, but you've also, now got a situation where, you know, as Mark Carney has so eloquently said many times, where the biggest threat to financial stability is um, is climate change and our failure to divest. Now, it's ordinary working class people right across this country who have their savings, their pensions, everything bound up in our financial system that stand to lose the most if we don't take a really key uh, strategic approach to this. So whereas in the past, I think we've fallen into uh, allowing this to become an issue that is divisive, where the poorest in this country are pitted against the poorest in the world. What we are seeking to do as a, a party that hopes to govern in a few years time is build a much broader consensus here and around the world about why tackling climate change is in all of our interests and by the way i'm very optimistic about this because i think we've also had quite a pessimistic approach about the british public to this in recent years but actually in wigan i get more letters about the environment than I do about any other single issue. And that has been consistently true for a decade now. So I think there is a huge consensus to be built in this country around climate change, particularly yeah. if we um, view it through the lens of the opportunity that is presented for countries like Britain to start investing in clean energy technology, battery technology, so that our young people are designing the clean energy of the future. You know. Yeah. Uh, Suma talked about the fact that the rising tide hasn't floated all boats, and that is exactly my experience back home in Wigan. But for ex-mining communities who are so proud of the role that we played in powering this country through the last century, there is a real opportunity for us now to talk yeah. to those communities about how their children and grandchildren will power us through the next. Yeah. Okay, thank, thanks. Uh, thanks very much indeed for that. And uh, no, I think we've uh, destroyed the metaphor of, of rising uh, tides and boats, um, as it doesn't work. Um, the, uh, China is really exercising um, the minds of a lot of our questioners. And let me just bring in a cluster of questions then on, on that from Francis D'Souza saying, I wonder what strategic engagement with China actually looks like. Quite a few people saying, does the Labour Party care about um, the rights of Hong Kong uh, people and what would it do about it? And then we have another question on um, saying what is the position of the Labour Party in re relation to the growing influence and power of China in Africa 
and across Asia. So dealing with the more difficult bits of the Chinese relationship, if you like. Um, Suma, can I come to you? And then Beth, I'd love your view, particularly on that, that engagement and collaboration. Suma. Okay, so I think, um, you know, as someone who I guess has uh, championed the, the idea of constructive engagement with those parts of the Chinese system, the one can reach out to, um, I think it, it does pay off. I mean, let me take the area I know best, which is development assistance, I guess. If you look at uh, which country is the biggest financier of uh, development, it is China. It isn't just through the multilaterals, it's actually through China Development Bank and other, uh, other entities. So there is a huge opportunity to try and actually uh, make China a better development player in, uh, in Africa, for example, where quite often in the past, so China has been criticized for actually not uh, helping on governance reform, for example, pushing poor uh, projects of, of poor value. There are many now in the Chinese system who recognize that critique actually, and want to do better. And so this is an area where I found actually the new Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is uh, China's biggest shareholder, but of course, the uh, UK is a member of that bank too. There was an opportunity for EBID and AIB to push the Chinese system to actually start cleaning up their act on development assistance in Africa and actually do better on that. And reform started. So it is possible, I think, if you really put your you know, shoulder to the wheel to really actually do try and change minds on certain attitudes. On some things, I think it's uh, much more difficult. Human rights, Hong Kong, um, where almost national honor is at stake. But in the international sphere, I think uh, where, you know, Chinese companies are playing out, and uh, the green economy would be a good, a good example of that climate area, where a lot of Chinese economies are actually very, very um, important in the solar panels and so on. China actually does try and move in the right direction. So push more in that direction, push more in that direction, because we've got to find ways of engaging with China in a positive way in order actually to have our criticisms also heard, uh, you know, by, by the Chinese. You've got to have, a, you know, I guess a, a two vector strategy towards China going forward. Okay, Beth. I agree with Suma's last point. I think finding the areas where that are less contentious, where you can build trust and build a foundation for that relationship, empowers you and creates the atmosphere for you to be able to have the more difficult conversations. So I think that two-pronged approach is absolutely the right one. And I do think research and our uh, the, U the leading UK university sector is a really strong place to do that. At both at that kind of bottom-up um, approach of, of allowing uh, Chinese researchers, Chinese students to come to the UK and experience what life here is like and take some of that back home or to wherever they go to next in their studies or in their work. Uh, but also in terms of the areas that we collaborate on and, and much as in trade in general, research uh, China is a research power that's not going anywhere. They're investing large, large sums in, in their research and their innovation. And therefore, to work collaboratively with that um, on particular issues uh, makes sense. They, they are they're here to stay as a research superpower. And in terms of what that could look like in terms of strategy, I think you could spread you, you could spread the jam very thinly in terms of the, the areas that you're co collaborating on. But actually, I think the idea of looking at particular areas where Chinese research is very strong and where the UK can learn something or where we can create uh, a very uh, strong collaboration is a good way to do that at, that, at the kind of governmental top-down uh, top level. So 
looking at particular areas of strength where we can work really strongly together and where you can keep further away from those issues of um, technological security and sovereignty. Oh, I, I hear you, and and um, and, and this plea for collaboration, and, and um, it, you know, it's a very powerful one. On, on the other hand, China hasn't always um, shown itself delighted at the idea of um, uh, uh, discussing in an open way um, human rights in Hong Kong or or something. I mean, uh, uh, Stephen, can, can I come on to you and put a particular question from David Walsh of the um, World Wildlife Fund? who says, does the UK need to differentiate between our values, for example, around tackling climate change and biodiversity loss and our strategic interests? I guess the question is broadly, yes. I think the difference is, is that in terms of those two specific uh, policy areas, i.e. biodiversity and, and climate change, no, because our strategic interest is, I mean, I know it's a slightly glib way of putting it, but it is nonetheless true, right? Our strategic interest is the, is to have a habitable biosphere, right? Like everything else kind of flows, flows from that. Um, I, I think, however, what that does mean is that, you know, I, and, you know, I'm sorry to put it quite this callously, but um, ultimately British policy is not going to change what the Chinese government does vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong. It just isn't. Uh, and so at some point you do have to kind of ask yourself, well, what does British trade policy want to accomplish on things where it might change the policy, not only of China, but of all of the rising economies of what we used to still do describe as the global south, um, to make sure that as they transition up the value chain, they don't do so in a way which only deepens our climate problem and our biodiversity and our sustainability problem. And, and ultimately, right, those yeah, kind of we have this like weird situation in politics where there's consensus among the two big parties about ambitious climate targets. But the second then someone goes, by the way, what else are you willing to give up? Whether it's your own car or your own foreign policy perspectives or your own slightly crazy Brexit timetable in the case of the, the governing party. Um, everyone goes, well, no, no, I mean, I'm not that ambitious about climate change. But I think so. the answer is yes. But on the specific two issues that, 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 that he names, no because those are kind of the things which have to come first above pretty much everything else. Okay, so thanks very much. Um, let me um, ask, assume that there's one uh, just saying, should um, overseas development assistance be, be cut um, because uh, gross national income is falling? So this isn't about scrapping the 0.7% or that whole debate, or is the foreign office now eating up uh, if it's money or anything, but it's saying you know, in this year, of a recession, is it right that uh, overseas development aid goes down? Well, I mean, fortunately, because of the uh, legal position, that is exactly what's going to happen um, because it's tied to GNI, um, which I always, personally, I've always thought was a mistake. Um, I think quality of development systems frankly matters a lot more than uh, quantity. But this year, of all years, when many um, developing countries, emerging markets, are going through real shocks because of the health crisis, which is hitting their economies and therefore jobs are being lost. This is the first time in 25 years that Sub-Saharan Africa will be in recession. Um, this is a year where actually it, doesn't, it, is, it isn't sensible actually to cut uh, the DFID budget. Uh, but it is what it is because of the law. Um, uh, but the government had an option, I think, not to go through that. It actually could have uh, continued um, at the same level, but it hasn't. Um, it's a great, it's a great pity. I mean, it probably, I think, 
beyond. So, so you would you would agree with that? The, the, what I'm taking to be the thrust of this question. It was from Emily, incidentally, and thank you very much, Emily. You, you, you would think that the government should have uh, exercised its freedom to exactly. Uh, this of all years was probably the wrong year to cut uh, odor. Thank you, um, Beth. I want to come to you from one of your. Um, colleagues, it's a pair of questions really. One from one of your colleagues, Lisa uh, Bangaratha from Imperial College London, saying, how can UK foreign policy help maintain UK's position as a global science superpower? It's an interesting way of putting it because uh, what we hear our um, minister saying is how can UK's position as a global science superpower help our foreign policy? But anyway, coming from your side of the thing, and then also there is a question right at the beginning from Paul about whether we need more technical education and indeed the old polytechnics um, to have lots of good scientists and researchers. Let me come to you that and then Lisa, I'm going to throw you one of the big ones at the end. Yeah, the science superpower question is really interesting because we, it's a term that's used a lot by the current government. Um, and when we, but often in a very domestic context, or as you say, in terms of what's it going to offer the UK overseas. But I think there are foreign policy um, issues that we need to look at. Some of those are about the mobility of, of or talent in general, but particularly the mobility of talent, um, which also speaks to that second question. So the UK has lots of great people in terms of the research community that we build from scratch. We know that we need to do more uh, to develop the technical workforce as well and to develop that homegrown talent. But however good our homegrown talent is, we will always want to bring in people from overseas because that's how research works. We get better ideas when we get that intermingling. So I think the UK, one aspect, and although this is in a sense domestic policy, it, it's closely related to our uh, how the UK is perceived overseas. We have to be a welcoming place for researchers to come to. And I'm sure and I hear this from other sectors as well, that that's that's true elsewhere. The hostile uh, the hostile environment policy um, and the the some of the limitations and problems in the way the UK visa system worked have not helped us attract talent, both in terms of the tone that's set mm. and also uh, the, the practical barriers and limitations. And I think that's something that any government has to put mm. front and centre. Um, but also we have to welcome outward mobility as well. It's a it is a two way thing and, and, and recognising that people will want to come to the UK for a bit and leave or UK nationals will want to leave uh, and finding ways to support that is really important. So, OK, great. And um, thanks. Sorry, I've got my eye on the clock appallingly because we could go on for, about these things for a long, long time. Um, very, uh, very interestingly and just briefly on technical education. So absolutely, I think the UK has not done enough uh, to build technical education. Uh, over some time, we see uh, we'd like to see development of research technicians. Um, I don't think I'm the right person to answer the very specific question about how that's done, but it is absolutely a, a, a key element of domestic policy that needs to be looked at as well. OK, thanks. And um, I'm going to squeeze in just one more. So Stephen and, and Suma, um, quick question on how relevant the Commonwealth is post, uh, post Brexit for Britain and a suggestion in the question that um, uh, countries like India are now US centric. They don't care about us. Either of you or both. I defer to Suma on this one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks very much, Stephen. Um, so look, uh, I think the Commonwealth, uh, you know, 
is important uh, only to a smaller, much smaller extent than it used to be. And we have to admit that. I think India, uh, as a Commonwealth country, is, uh, is very important. Um, and actually, uh, there is a feeling now in India that it's a little bit less US-centric in, uh, in where the students go, for example, than it used to be. Um, actually, there's a much wider variety of destinations of students. Uh, my generation, my father's generation, uh, UK was always the place you went to. Um, but I think the next generation, US, was the one place. It's actually shifted a bit, and you can see that in business school admissions around the world as well. Um, but can I just make, take this up on you? One quick point. We haven't really discussed rebuilding the relationship with the EU. I um, mean, you know, there are several areas of policy, foreign policy, development policy, defense policy, where there isn't a difference of opinion, actually. And uh, President Macron suggested uh, creating a European Security Council. I think it's a very good idea for bringing EU and UK together. I propose that we should also push, and maybe this is something Lisa could mount an initiative on, a European Development Council, which would bring together the UK, EFTA, and the EU, because there really isn't a policy difference. Mm. There are issues about Sub-Saharan Africa being a priority for all of these countries, and uh, really trying to make common cause that would be a relatively easy win, and yeah. a way of staying engaged with the EU. Yeah. Okay, and thank you for that, um, because it sets me up for, for what I wanted to ask Lisa. And sorry, there's lots of the questions I can't get in there. They're terrific questions and all kinds of things about the impact of COVID on the world and so on. But Lisa, I wanted to ask, because a lot of questioners have as well, what you would like the Labour Party to do about future relations with the EU? Well, you know, if you cast your mind back to the referendum debates during 2015, 2016, if you can bear it, and um, one of the features of that debate, one of the curious things about it was that nobody was arguing that by leaving the European Union, we would be turning our back on our relationships with partners and allies across Europe. And in fact, in the many debates I took part in, I was serving in the shadow cabinet at the time, uh, arguing for Remain, uh, the, the key argument from, from Leave uh, campaigners was that we could strengthen our alliances with European allies if we were outside of the European Union. So there ought to be a consensus that Asuma rightly said that these relationships still matter, that neighbours matter, geography matters in foreign policy. And that, you know, if you look at the response to the COVID pandemic, when we were in uh, real dire straits in the early days of the, the virus hitting Britain, we turned to India and China for um, for assistance. We also reached out to the United States, but we, all, we worked very closely with European friends in order to make sure that we had the things that we needed, whether it was PPE or um, paracetamol um, or um, the ability to work together just to overcome the crisis. So, you know, from my point of view, from Labour's point of view, those relationships will continue to matter. We've stayed within the party of European socialists. Um, because, which is the progressive grouping across Europe, because the, now more than ever, as the world faces a choice about whether to pull together uh, to deal with COVID-19 or whether to break apart, we have to make sure that we're building the widest possible range of alliances. We're outside of the EU and that argument is over, but we, are, we still belong with our friends and allies in Europe and across the world, and we'll continue to reach out and work with them closely. And the situation to me doesn't seem quite as bleak as it might appear. Stephen said a lot of those countries are keeping a close eye on British politics. 
They are aware that this is a government that may not want to build consensus at home or overseas, but in the end, that is a government that may not last. And okay. so, you know, the Labour Party's role in this at the current time, I, I believe, could not be more important. And we will continue to fly the flag for internationalism. Being in the, United, in the European Union is not the only way to be an internationalist global power. And we will make sure that Britain continues to play a role in the world. Okay, well, thank you for that, that, that answer and taking us perfectly to the end of this session on uh, Britain in the world after Brexit. Um, thank you. Terrific session. And real apologies to the, uh, the great questions uh, that I couldn't get in. Well, great questioners, if you like. Um, many thanks indeed to Imperial College London and to Welcome uh, for working with us on, on this. And thank you to my terrific panel, Lisa, Stephen, Beth and Suma. Thank you all for watching.